namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang namang sanghang namasahani So in the winter retreat, we're probably about pretty close to the halfway point. Things are pretty quiet. We're kind of snowed in right now. There's no visitors. It's just us, the community. Our external circumstances are very peaceful, conducive. And with, oh, let's see, 10 different people, we probably have 10 different status reports on meditation practice progress, probably all in slightly different places. Today I was talking with some people about a recent personnel difficulty we had here at the monastery. And I was contemplating about the way different people were seeing the same event. So, when something happens, whether it's a, some kerfuffle in the kitchen, or a car accident, or um, two people passing by each other in the hallway, or uh, someone says a sentence or a word. There's at least two different experiences of it. There's a sign that's of the person who's doing the thing, and then there's a, whoever it is that's witnessing it or experiencing it. And they can be very, very different. Our ideas about other people are made of these kinds of experiences. They're always secondhand. The people themselves, we don't actually know what it's like, really, inside their mind. We can't have their subjective experience. We're always interpreting their acts and their words through our own subjectivity, and we lose sight of that. We're accustomed to our mind giving us a pretty good representation of the physical world, 
And so whatever our mind tells us about other people, we just tend to assume that it's, it's correct, that it's representative of some kind of absolute truth. And it's actually true not only in our own minds, but is or should be true in the minds of others as well and in the mind of the person who's on the other side of the transaction. So if somebody says something to us and we're offended, then it's hard not to believe that the other person knows that what they said was offensive and intended it that way, or doesn't care, or has some other negative motivation. And we lose sight of the fact that the offensiveness of something is oftentimes, for the most part, simply our own mind reacting in a habitual way to something which might only be, well, might be fairly trivial, or might have been meant in an entirely different way. Oftentimes, people do and say things and have very little awareness of the impact of those words and acts on others around them. So you can't, you can't really assign malicious intent to their words and acts if they're operating from a kind of half-conscious or very distracted mental uh, stance. So as always, the suffering that comes about in a situation like that is our own minds making us suffer. The words and acts of others are their karma. If they're acting with a deluded mind or a angry mind or a, a mind colored by ill will, then of course their acts and their words will reflect that and they'll have to bear the kama of those unwholesome words and acts. And so if anything, we should feel some sense of sympathy or tolerance for their their mistakes. If we don't hurt ourselves, if we don't take offense, if our own mind doesn't react, then it's like that sutta in which the Buddha is talking to a Brahmin about the notion of giving a visitor something to eat. Yes, the Brahman, if, if someone visits you, do you provide them with food and drink, or refreshment or a snack? And the Brahman says, yes, of course. And if they eat it, does it belong to them? Yes, if they accept it, it belongs to them. 
But if they don't accept it and they leave it, they get up and they go away, who does it belong to then? still belongs to me. And in the same way, if someone offers us words or acts, it's like that meal from the Brahman. It only really becomes ours when we accept it, when we internalize it, when we eat it. If we simply leave it there on the table, then it still belongs to the person that offered it. And this obviously is a much more wholesome, skillful, um, equanimity-producing way of relating to the words and actions of other people. Even if they're intentionally trying to hurt us, we can simply leave it on the table. And for the most part, people at monasteries aren't really going around trying to hurt each other. It's just not in keeping with the character of the place or the kinds of people who are attracted here. But we do lose our mindfulness. We do lose track of what we're saying and doing. We do have moods and colorations of the mind come up and we do lose track of our mindfulness. And so we are likely to occasionally say or do things which could have been done better. If we look back and we see that we've done something harmful, of course it's a good idea to try to make amends. But if we ourselves feel somehow offended, it's best to examine ourselves. All of our problems are not really coming from the external world. They can't really be solved in the external world. The external world gives us contact. But it's the inner world that generates clinging, that gets triggered, that holds on to views and opinions, ideas and beliefs. And these are the stances that we take in relation to the outside world's contacts, and from which we judge and interpret And those judgments and interpretations are the basis of us suffering, experiencing various kinds of offense, anguish, hurt, on account of the words and acts of others. The only way to train the mind not grab onto those things and cause internal suffering is the Eightfold Noble Path. So we train ourselves 
to conduct ourselves as best we can with right speech, right action, and light livelihood. And then we examine our own view and make sure our view is straight, clearly understanding as best we can the principle of kama, cause and effect, action and its result, how things come about. And also make sure that our, our own intentions are straight. Non-ill will, non-cruelty, non-greed. These are all principles of restraint. In a way, the entire path involves various kinds of restraint. There's a photograph in the archive that I saw a few weeks ago. It's an image of a saying of Ajahn Chah posted on a tree at Bapananacha in Thailand. And the saying goes something like this. It's more important to abandon the unwholesome than to do good. When it comes to right view and right intention, that's really important. The intention to abandon the unwholesome, to abandon thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of aversion, thoughts of hatred, thoughts of jealousy, thoughts of bitterness, thoughts of greed, thoughts of lust, thoughts of wanting, thoughts of ignoring, thoughts of indifference. Abandoning those things is more important than doing good. Doing good is very nice, but doing good by itself doesn't abandon anything. In order to abandon something, you have to recognize that it's there, that it's happening, that it's arising in your mind. You have to recognize that there's some part of you that's holding on to it, that's obsessing over it, justifying it, clinging to it, making something out of it. This is a subtle but important business because in the end, what the Buddha is pointing to, Ibana, the reason that we're here, the whole point of the training, involves this principle of abandoning, of letting go of clinging. As long as our minds are entangled with the unwholesome, then we can't see clearly and we cause ourselves suffering. 
So whenever we notice unwholesome mind states, especially if they're coming up as a response to the trigger of some external event, we have an opportunity. There's the possibility that we can see what's happening, recognize it, make an effort to abandon it. And that's a kind of doing good, which is far more important, far more powerful, has deeper implications than any sort of making merit, external doing of good that we often see people doing in this tradition that we might also participate in. Doing good is good. It's wholesome. It can uplift the mind. But even better is looking inside and seeing what's not good and stopping it, abandoning it, obliterating it, <laughs> getting rid of it, attenuating it, working with it, substituting it with something else, doing something, anything other than just going along accepting it, taking it as given, ignoring it, surrendering to it, indulging it. Those, those, all of those different ways of not abandoning it are kind of going along with the stream of samsara, that which keeps us bound to the wheel of becoming and the cycle of suffering. But the efforts that are involved in recognizing and at least attempting to set aside the unwholesome, this is the key to the escape It's at least half the job, maybe more. It's also mostly what we have to do. We have to do it over and over and over again. There's an image that someone brought up not too long ago, cleaning the Aegean stables, one of the labors of Hercules. His stables Stable animals, I think, are horses, and they're producing such a volume of manure that no matter how fast and hard Hercules works, it seems he can't really make any headway. And sometimes our mind can seem like that, producing a huge volume of manure. And uh, what can we ever do about that? Hercules' solution, of course, was to divert a river 
through the stables and wash away all the manure at once. Maybe that's maybe a metaphor for having deep insight. So our practice of meditation, concentration, mindfulness, effort that's involved in developing meditation and arousing insight. This is the part where we divert the river. But until we divert the river, we simply have to labor like Hercules and remove the manure as fast as we can. Don't let it build up. Don't just tolerate it. This is a big challenge, part of the essentials of the holy life. It goes right back to what the Buddha said about his own practice prior to his enlightenment. When he was merely an unenlightened bodhisattva. He said his practice was to examine the contents of his mind. And whatever he saw there that was wholesome, that led to his own benefit and welfare and to the welfare of others or the welfare of both. Such aspects of mind he would cultivate and support. And whatever he saw arising in his mind that was unwholesome and inclined towards his own affliction or the affliction of others or the affliction of both, that he would abandon. A straightforward two-part practice. The key to it, of course, is knowing what's arising in your mind. So this is what we really have to do. This is, you could say, a tremendous part of what the practice is and what the monastery is for, what the winter retreat is for, for us to watch our minds as continuously as we can, both while we're doing formal walking and sitting meditation and when we're doing ordinary, everyday activities. If we know what's going on in our minds, then we can see what we should do. We can see what we should abandon and what we should cultivate, what we should support, what we should keep, and what we should get rid of. But if we don't examine, if we don't know what's arising in our minds, if we're only half awake to the reality of what's going on in our own minds, then we don't have that option. We can't choose to abandon something that we haven't recognized or cultivate something that we don't know about. So the events that happen to us, like that event with the difficulties with personnel a few weeks ago, they're just events. They pass by. They touch our minds. We have opinions and views 
if we recognize what's going on, we can really make the best of it. We can uh, take, as it were, proverbial lemons and make lemonade. Nothing has to be a problem if we recognize this training principle. Whatever is arising in our minds, we can classify wholesome or unwholesome, and then we can take appropriate action. And when we're doing that, we're fulfilling the direction of the Buddha. We're fulfilling the purpose of the monastery. We're training. We're training our minds. We're doing what we came here to do. And then we can be happy and glad we're on the right track. The amount of interaction that we have right now is quite small. We're not talking very much. The chores and the work is pretty light. There aren't many events. And yet still we can find ourselves in our minds churning a tremendous opportunity, rare in the world. We have weeks and months of the winter retreat to keep returning again and again and taking advantage of this wonderful training opportunity that's been afforded us, that somehow our kama has brought to us. There's a lot of ways to waste time, an infinite number of ways to avoid doing what needs to be done. Life is short. Our time is limited. There's less than we think. We should not dally. We should not hesitate. It's best to take full advantage. The circumstances are almost Miraculous. It doesn't really get much better than this. Other people are paying for us to be here. I've donated every single object of the monastery, including our food. We have to ask ourselves whether we're making ourselves worthy of this level of support with our practice.
Are we really taking it seriously? It can be tempting to let ourselves become something like a pampered pet where we simply lounge about. But that's the way of suffering. That will not purify the mind. That leaves the door open for the proliferation of unwholesome mind states. The way out and the way up is to recognize the situation clearly for what it is. To devote ourselves over and over again to this practice. To arouse energy, willingness, strong intention, and apply ourselves to the various practices and modes and techniques that we've learned over the years. And to hold ourselves aloof from all the distractions that are available, even at the monastery, to apply ourselves diligently to our meditation practice. Fulfilling our minimal duties with minimal fuss and carry on practicing as best we can, making optimal use of these incredible circumstances for our own welfare and benefit, for the fulfillment of the intention of our supporters and donors for the welfare and benefit of all beings. And leave that for your consideration. Andavayang tamo varakataya sadhu karang dhamma se sadhu